Welcome to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director at Privacy International. And I'm Caitlin, and I'm PI Senior Campaigns Officer. Hi. And Hi, I'm Millie. I'm one of the lawyers. Sorry, Gus. <laughs> I wanted to introduce you, but no, you just barge you said in. You introduced and you hadn't written it. And I was like, oh, God, now what do I say? Just like every lawyer just barges in and states their demands. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're joined by Millie Graham Wood. Millie. Hi. Welcome. (laughs) It's actually wonderful to have you. Um, It's a little sad to have you on this podcast as well, because by the time it is done and broadcast, you will no longer be working with us. And we've had Millie on this podcast a number of times, most recently about mobile phone extraction. Is that correct, Millie? Yeah, it, I mean, not so recent, but I like the fact that I started the podcast series, in, at least in terms of my appearance, with mobile phone extraction. And in many ways, I'm ending with mobile phone extraction. <laughs> Is that all you did at six, for six years at PI? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, there's a lot to do, isn't there? Still happening. Still happening. Well, it's a little sad, but I'm very grateful that in your last few days with us, you're able to get a guest to join us for this podcast. And I was wondering if you could introduce her. Yes, it's my pleasure that we are going to speak to Professor Gillian Tully. She is an internationally recognized leader in forensic science with over 30 years experience in the field. At Privacy International, our work, and particularly stuff that I've been lucky enough to focus on in relation to police and border control, has been looking at the raft of high-tech and data-intensive surveillance tools that are emerging not just in the UK, but across the world. And certainly for us, we, we think that there's a crucial aspect to this work, which we look forward to speaking to Gillian about today, which concerns the quality integrity and reliability of digital evidence. Great. So today, I'd like to not only just focus on your expertise in England and Wales as forensic science regulator from 2014 to 2021, but also to reflect perhaps on an international level as well. So I'll start with quite a broad question on digital forensics, which I think is possibly the aspect of forensic most relevant to the work of PI, which is what is digital forensics? And why should quality and accuracy matter to organisations such as PI, both on a national level and internationally? And are there other areas of forensics that we should be aware of too? Well, we all leave digital traces as we go through each day, whether it's something we post on social media, an email or a message we send, payments we make, the journeys we take by public transport or car, where we go with our phones in our pockets, images of us that are captured on CCTV, what we search for online, or really almost any interaction in modern life. So digital forensics concerns the study of these digital traces. And it involves the extraction and the processing, analysis and interpretation of digital data in relation to investigation or court proceedings. 
So it's really important that when we are thinking about digital forensics, those traces that we're talking about, those digital traces are correctly extracted, correctly analyzed and correctly interpreted. Because I think there's perhaps a tendency to think that digital forensics is just a bit of a plug and play type activity that you plug something in and you get the answer right. But it's much more technically complex than that. And so the resulting digital traces do need to be properly interpreted. So it's important to know where the risks lie. So that's why it's really important, I think, to understand. And then Other areas of forensic science, which also deal with personal information, include DNA analysis and fingerprints and also toxicology, which looks at, you know, body fluids to look at what particular toxins and drugs might be in them. I wonder if there are some basic questions that organisations should start asking when they see use of different technologies by the police or by border force in criminal investigations, whether it's like extraction devices or other forms of digital forensics? Like what are the sort of top five or 10 questions people could start with, even if they don't know how the device works? I guess it depends on what the concern is in the first place, because obviously we do want police particularly to be able to use these technologies in making links between crimes and linking people to crimes and dealing with dangerous and violent crimes. So that's something that we absolutely want to be happening. But if we're concerned about individual risks, we might want to think about whether there is too broad a capture of data from people who aren't involved in any way and whether that capture of data might be an infringement of our own privacy. But we also want to think about making sure that there isn't the possibility to mix things up or get something wrong or accidentally misinterpret a trace. So it's what data is being collected, for what purpose, and how reliable is the collection, analysis, and interpretation of that data. So it would be all very well, for example, to look at my browser history and see what I have been looking at online. Or you might want to look for a file on my computer. But even if you find a file on my computer, it doesn't mean that I put that file there. So the questions are not just what traces are there, but how can they be interpreted? Are they being interpreted appropriately and for a proper and legal purpose? And in terms of the context, certainly where we see this being used, you're often seeing individuals who don't have a lot of money necessarily to pay for an expert to look at it or wouldn't necessarily know that this is an issue. So is there a responsibility as well in terms of, say, the government or industry and where does the forensic science regulators role fall here, at least in England and Wales, in terms of picking up these issues if it's not for the individual too? So there are various regulators who are involved here, and it's the Information Commissioner's Office that's most involved in the what data should be held and on, on what basis. But the Forensic Science Regulator's role is very specifically about the quality of the actual digital forensic analyses. And that's critically important because I think that reliability and proportionality are really quite closely linked because... You can't say something is proportional to look into lots of data about me if actually the way you're looking at that data is not necessarily reliable and could throw up lots of errors. 
And so it's really important that the forensic science regulator has a role in making sure that there are quality standards that actually set out that the people who do the analysis are competent, that they're using equipment that's properly calibrated and maintained, that they're using methods that are scientifically robust and justifiable, and that the limitations and risks of any methods are well known and are very clearly disclosed in any subsequent proceedings. Because we don't expect everything to be perfect. There's no such thing, for example, as a full download from a computer or from a phone. Things are hidden. Things can't be recovered. And so we just need to be very, very upfront about what we can do and what we can't do and make sure that we've properly tested that in a controlled environment so that we know where the risks are and so that we're being very honest and straightforward with what we're trying to do and what we can't say about the data, which is equally important as what we can say about it. That's such a powerful way of putting the proportionality question that I never really thought about before. And I I think for a lot of people listening to this, they might actually find it surprising that forensics isn't cut and dry in the digital era, whereas it might have been, you know, vague in the analog era of like a smudged fingerprint or a tire track that is a little uncertain. But the fact that even when you actually have a device, even when you actually have a data set, the clarity isn't just about whether the ones and zeros line up, but as you're adding to it, the question of proportionality is also about the nature of the access. But it also makes me think of, there was a case in India where at least it's unclear, and I'm not saying this is entirely factual because although we've read reporting, we can't verify if it's actually true, but there are claims that hacking was used by the authorities to plant evidence on the device of a political activist. And that, that, you know, in the old days, it was possible to plant drugs on somebody and whatnot. But in the old days, we might have questioned somebody being found with something in their possession. But do we question digital at all now? Because like we watch TV and we take the phone and say, oh, we, let's download everything on the phone. And then the episode's over five minutes later because they go to jail because they got the device. But it doesn't work that way, does it? No, it doesn't. First of all, we've got to think about what the question is we're answering. What is the reason why we want to look at that device in the first place? So what's the strategy that we're going to take? And therefore, what do we need to look at? So if it was, for example, that we're looking into whether somebody has downloaded illegal indecent images, we might not just be wanting to look for picture files that we all would recognize so that they've got a .jpeg at the end or something else, because people might have tried to hide those. So it's about more than just thinking, oh, I'll look for all the obvious picture files in that case. It's about looking for the hidden files and so on. Whereas in a different case, you might have a completely different strategy. That's not what you're looking for. And it doesn't really matter if a file is hidden or not. So it's about being clear, what's the purpose of the analysis? And then the method that I'm using, is it fit for that stated purpose? Can it do what I think it does? And what are the risks and what could go wrong during the analysis? And then it comes on after you've extracted the data to that thinking about um, the interpretation and did that file get to be there because of my activity or because of something like hacking, as you've said. And, And there was recently, very recently, a publication by a colleague in Norway about what she called evidence elasticity. 
And it was really about how different examiners interpreted digital traces in different ways in a particular setup example where they were given a device that had been set up for experimental purposes. And not only did they get different findings from it, but also even people who got the same findings interpreted them differently. Wow. So it's not a, a cut and dry, you know, I will plug this in, I will get the answer, and that's the end of the story. And, you know, we are all affected by the way our brain works. We can't alter the way our brains work. And so things like unintentional biases, cognitive biases, and this is not talking about behaving improperly or having a deliberate bias or trying to fit somebody up. These are the unintentional shortcuts that our brains take. They can also have an impact on digital forensics. And again, there's been an academic study, a small study, but there has been a study looking at that. And depending on what the examiner was told about guilt beforehand did have an impact or appeared to have an impact on how many digital traces that they found. So, you know, all these things are terribly important and that's why we can't just leave it to individuals' best efforts to get things right. We have to have a systematic approach to quality control, quality assurance, making sure people are well trained, that that training's kept up to date. Because you know, we all know how quickly the technology is moving and someone who was trained two years ago and hasn't had any update training will already be out of date. So it's just really important to have that all embedded in a systematic approach rather than a best efforts approach. Just for the people who, who like me, only know about the law from TV, the forensic regulator would regulate, is it the training or is it the conduct of forensics practitioners, those aren't just the practitioners that exist within police forces. They're the ones who might be for defense and other institutions. Is that how broad the remit is? Yes. So the forensic science regulator has a remit to set quality standards and to make sure that there is a way that compliance with those standards can be measured. They're not an inspectorate, so they don't go around themselves inspecting what people are doing, but they use a different system. So they set a standard. Generally, these are international standards. And then we have assessment. There's an assessment body in the UK. It's the United Kingdom Assessment Service that goes and checks are the organizations compliant with the standards? So they'll do assessments on an ongoing basis to see whether the organizations are compliant. And those standards cover not just training or not just methods. They cover the whole sort of systematic approach. They cover who's in charge, who's responsible and accountable for the work, who's making sure it's being done appropriately, making sure that the methods are properly documented so that everybody's taking the same approach as opposed to everybody doing things their own little way that they think is perhaps the best. Has that method actually been tested and checked? Do we know that it works? Do we know what its limitations are? And that's called method validation checking that it, it does what, what we think it does. And then are there appropriate checks of quality of each individual case that goes out? Is each one checked to make sure it's right before it goes out the door? Are there more generic checks over time that this unit is performing at least as well 
as other comparable units. So we use proficiency testing where the same sorts of samples are sent to all the different laboratories and they have to all send back the results and see how they perform against each other. And all those sorts of things are all part of that systematic quality management. So it's not just one thing that's checked, it's the whole raft of things. And you can't just say someone's been on a training course, so they're competent. You have to give actual objective evidence to the assessment body of how you know that person's competent. Are there any certainties, like not just digital forensic science, but in any of the forensic sciences that you kind of looked at? Is it all percentages of risk and percentages of certainty like we are, you know, only so certain that this is probably what happened? Or are there situations in which it's possible to say this is definitely for certain a thing? Yeah, so I suppose you could distinguish between fact and opinion. And so there are certain facts, and in digital forensics, there are perhaps more facts than in some other areas of science. So you could, if you have examined an image of a computer hard disk and you found on there a particular file, it could be an image or it could be, you know, a set of instructions, whatever it is, if your tool has searched and found that, you can then go and look on that hard drive and say, is it there? So your tools indicated it's there. You can then go and see, is it there? Yes, it's there. I can see it's there. I can verify it's there. It is there. And that is a fact that it is there. Now, how it came to be there is not as black and white or how long it might have been there. You know, there are other questions that may not be as black and white as, is it there? So, you know, most of science is probabilistic in nature. Most of science, it isn't black and white. It's somewhere in between. And I suppose going back to the earlier comment, that's why the TV depictions are very misleading because it seems to be very black and white. But, you know, even fingerprints that everybody has always thought for 100 years is black and white. It's not black and white. It's still an opinion. Do these two patterns match each other? And that is an expert opinion and not an actual indisputable fact. So most of forensic science involves opinion and inference and is not black and white. But as I say, there are certain things that you can be pretty confident about, you know, and there are certain facts that are there, you know. I have recovered this item. It is there. You know, those are straightforward facts, but often forensic science goes beyond that initial fact. Are there any really, really awful forensic depictions on TV? I'm thinking specifically, actually, of like lie detectors, which from my understanding are not a real thing, but are used pretty prevalently across Delhi. Well, I I wouldn't actually call them science. (laughs) (laughs) I had a question about third party tools, which is something that you probably raised a lot, but certainly in the House of Lords investigation, that they are not properly tested or it's not easy to properly test them because of commercial sensitivity. I think some of the examples that certainly we've looked at relate to mobile phone extraction tools. And I think that's been brought up in a few cases that it's hard to test them or find out what's going on when they are doing the extraction. I wondered if you could elaborate a bit on that, because the use of third party tools technology is fairly prevalent within digital forensics. Yes, I mean, It is possible to test tools. You don't need to know the source code to test how something performs. 
So what you would normally do, and we have in the Forensic Science Regulators Codes of Practice and Conduct, it sets out an approach to this issue of testing, and we call it validation. What we don't try and tend to do is just test the tool in isolation. What we would normally try and do is test the method. So the method involves the person and the decisions that the person makes and the tool and the quality assurance checks that are in that end-to-end method. So how you would normally go about that is, first of all, you'd say, well, what is the purpose that I'm using this method for? Am I using it to detect everything? Am I trying to use it to detect only certain types? Am I using it to try and detect deleted data? So you'll set out what's your purpose. And then once you've set out your purpose, you can think about, well, what are the big risks in using that method? What could go wrong? And if it did, how big would the scale of that something going wrong be? How important would it be? And that enables you to set up a test plan. What is it I'm testing and why am I testing it? And where am I putting the bulk of my testing effort? Because I want to put the most of my testing effort where the biggest risks are. And so you would normally, if you're using a third-party extraction tool in a method overall, you would set up um, a selection of mobile phones that you've bought new and you've seeded data onto. So you know what's on there because you put it on there. And then you would test the performance of the method in retrieving that data. Now, the shortcoming is that really you can't test every phone because every phone that we have is different. So I have two phones. I have a work phone and a home phone, and they're both the same make and model of phone. But because I have different apps on each of them and I have different data on each of them and I've had them each for a different length of time and I've made different calls and done different things on them, they're not identical anymore. So you can't feasibly reproduce every possible thing that could happen on a phone. So that's why the risk analysis is so important. You try and work on your understanding of how the methods work, where things go wrong, where you can put in manual checks to minimize the potential for um, something going wrong to, to just be immediately transferred into a report without being caught. And you try and test around those risks as far as you can. But then you've also got to have ongoing checks and you've got to check, you know, in the context of each case, has the method performed as I would expect? If there are these apps on the phone, have I got something from those apps or is there something that doesn't make sense? And there's also an importance about information sharing because, you know, you do get unexpected behavior sometimes with some of these tools. And so it's important that the manufacturers and all the users of the tools work collaboratively together so that if someone discovers that actually that particular version of that tool has behaved in an unexpected way in one of their tests or in a case, that that information is shared as much as possible so that others can learn from that and build in additional checks if need be. So For organizations that hold accreditation to the relevant standards, that validation is something that is checked by the assessment service. And that is one of the things that will be checked. Is there a process by which they do that testing of tools? They won't check in detail 
every single time that they've tested it, but they'll say, is their process good enough? Have they got an approach that works? Have they found things that go wrong? Do they appropriately look at the results of their testing and act accordingly and put in the right tests and so on, and the right checks and the right quality controls? I've seen, I think, reports that do something like that from the US National Institute of Standards and Technology. Is that right? They do a lot of testing there, but I haven't seen it so much in the UK that they would test the different devices to see what different levels of extraction each one can do on certain phones. So yes, NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology in the US, does a lot of tool testing and they make all of that publicly available. So that would be one of the pieces of evidence that could potentially go into your overall testing strategy for your method. Like I say, in the UK, we try to take a more method-based approach. So the tool is part of the method as opposed to being, you know, a standalone thing, because actually how the tool performs will depend on how you're using it and what decisions you make along the way as well. So that's why we tried to test that. Now, NIST is a really great organization because it publishes everything it does. You won't find generally that validation and testing that's done by organizations in the UK published. Largely, that's because they haven't got time. You know, they they do the testing, they move on, they're doing the next thing and, and the next thing. It's not, I don't think, because they're being deliberately secretive, but it's because, you know, putting together that kind of testing program and publication program that NIST has takes a lot of time. Doesn't mean that testing isn't going on in the UK, but it's certainly not published to the same extent. And so just to finish on this topic, where it was said in the House of Lords report and investigation, there is reliance on third party tools that are not properly tested. Do you think that's something that's changed since that report came out? If you say if you're talking about a Celebrite or Magnet Forensics tool, can we rely more heavily on what's produced by them without questioning that technology? Because would it come up in the new code of practice of the forensic science regulator that that's more heavily governed or is it still the case that they aren't properly tested? So I suppose the answer is it depends. For organizations that hold accreditation to the right standards, they will have tested their methods. Okay. You know, we're all still learning in this field to some extent and the extent and the effectiveness of testing is improving over time. But there are still organizations that are doing this kind of analysis, but don't hold accreditation to the quality standards that the forensic science regulator has set. And so that's maybe an appropriate segue into the fact that the regulator is now getting statutory enforcement powers. And so the Forensic Science Regulator Act 2021 put in place the basic legislation required to give the regulator statutory powers. So the enforcement powers haven't quite kicked in yet, but they will do shortly. So the the statutory code of practice is out for consultation. After that, any changes will be made and then it will be finalised and put before both Houses of Parliament for approval. Once that approval is given from both Houses of Parliament, then the final parts of that Forensic Science Regulator Act will be commenced and the regulator will then have statutory enforcement powers. And so the important part of that really is that the regulator, if they believe that there is a substantial risk of adversely affecting any investigation or impeding or prejudicing the course of justice in any proceedings, they will be able to issue a compliance notice. And that compliance notice can go as far as 
prohibiting someone or an organisation from carrying on that forensic science activity in England and Wales until the regulator is satisfied that whatever steps he set out in the notice have been taken. Now, it doesn't necessarily need to go straight to that ultimate sanction of stopping people from working, but that is the ultimate sanction that the regulator will be able to intervene and stop people or organisations from providing services if they represent a real risk to justice. And the other important thing about that Act is that the Code of Practice will be admissible in any proceedings. And the important thing there is that, you know, if in court there is any consideration that that the work wasn't done properly or there's a challenge by the defence that the organisation providing the evidence was not compliant with the code, that will then be admissible as something to be considered in considering whether the forensic science work is in fact reliable and admissible at all. So, Not only can the regulator act, but also there could be admissibility challenges on the basis of non-compliance with the code. So that's really important. And the other really important thing about the statutory powers is that the regulator will have a statutory power to investigate if, again, if he is concerned that there's a substantial risk of adversely affecting investigations or impeding or prejudicing the course of justice. And so that means that the regulator will be able to require people to produce copies of documents and other information, whereas at the point when I was regulator, when it was a non-statutory role, I could only request that documentation. So the regulator will be able to require it now and will will be able to conduct an investigation whether the organisation likes it or not. So I think those are really important safeguards. And it means that it will be much more difficult for organisations to just ignore the standards and and not comply with the standards. And when you refer to organisations, do you think this is going to have a significant impact on government and state use of digital forensics tools? Yes. I mean, if we look across the sort of landscape of compliance, the larger commercial providers tend to be accredited to the relevant standards. Some police forces, an increasing number of police forces, have got a level of accreditation to the relevant standards, but maybe not for all. And some of the very small organisations, many of them are not compliant. And to be fair, there is an issue there. It costs money to comply with quality standards. But when it comes down to administration of justice and the implications of not having that quality control in place, it's very difficult to make an exception for a small business because, you know, if you were a suspect or a victim in a crime, you don't choose who's doing the forensic science in your case. And it shouldn't depend on the size of the organisation, whether they have to comply with the standards or not. I think you've outlined why we need to be aware of what's going on in digital forensics, but I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more in terms of why, as civil society, we need to have a better understanding of what's going on and why forensics is a topic that we need to be more concerned with and understand better. 
Well, what I think is important is being able to ask questions about the applications of the technology and about the risks that are involved rather than everybody trying to become a technical expert. I think it is important to know where technology is being used, what it's being used for and what the risks are with that technology. So I think those are the reasons why civil society needs to be concerned. And you know, outside forensic science, we can see examples of where things go wrong. And this is not a forensic science example, but we all saw what happened when the post office horizon computer system was not functioning as it should. Popping in from the future slash the edit to say, for those of you who don't remember or never knew, the horizon post office scandal was a huge miscarriage of justice in the UK. The post office purchased some dodgy accounting software, which had made it look like money had been going missing, there were shortfalls on tills, and for 14 years the post office prosecuted around one person a week, over 700 people, for false accounting and theft. Many were financially ruined, some went to prison. But after 20 years, campaigners were able to have their cases reconsidered, as the accounting software that was the foundation of the evidence against them was deeply flawed. Many have since received compensation and have had their convictions overturned. You know, there was a lot of pressure over a lot of time by civil society groups, actually, by by groups supporting those affected to bring about a review and change. So it's another level of scrutiny as to what's being used. And I think that explanation would be very reassuring to a lot of organisations and certainly ones we work with who appreciate PI's involvement because we like digging into the technical detail, but it needs more than us looking at these issues. You work for many years, I'm sure, as forensic science regulator to ensure that statutory powers were brought in. What did you envisage in terms of how that may change the engagement of civil society with the regulator? That's an interesting question. I suppose I was really more focused on how It would impact on the regulator and the providers of forensic science because they will be the first people who will have to deal with the statutory powers. And then secondly, with the wider criminal justice system. But I think you raise a good point. And it's always been the case that anybody could raise an issue to the regulator and ask the regulator to look into it. But with the power to investigate as opposed to just a remit to investigate should organisations allow them, it will allow the regulator more flexibility in looking into those sorts of issues that are raised, providing they're within his remit. Because that's the other thing, is that with the non-statutory regulator, it's not set out quite so clearly what the remit is, and there's a little bit of flexibility around the edges. But with a statutory regulator, the remit is set out in law, and it's not possible for the regulator to do something outside their remit. So they've got to be very careful to make sure that they do stay within their legal limit. And I was just wondering if you could clarify that, because I know it relates to criminal investigation and prosecution, but perhaps that's something we need to emphasise when people are thinking about digital forensics and all the different areas where there are data-intensive systems. If we're going to complain to the forensic science regulator, that's actually a very specific area that we can raise. Absolutely. And the forensic science regulator only has a remit in relation to criminal justice, the use of forensic science in the criminal justice system. So it's about investigations and proceedings within criminal justice. 
There has been discussion about whether it needs to go broader into the family justice system and or the civil justice system. But as things stand at the minute, it is the criminal justice system. So, you know, there are other regulators, as we discussed, who'll look at issues of privacy and proportionality. But there's nobody else looking at the detail of the quality standards for forensic science outside the criminal justice arena. With your 30 years of experience and, of course, being the regulator for a moment in time, you're talking about remits and the boundaries, and that's a very English problem, but also a problem of law. Are there parts of what you see going on in the world where you wish you could apply the scientific method that you've developed over 30 years and you and your colleagues have practiced and you think, oh gosh, I see that over there and I really wish there was a regulator. I wish there was a body of practice that we could apply that scrutiny to. It could be around, I don't know, elections. You you mentioned family law. I don't know. I'm curious if there are parts of the conduct of law or society that you wish we could apply this type of scrutiny. Well, it's interesting because as a scientist, I, th- I suppose I think we ought to take a more scientific approach to many things in the world. But in terms of scrutiny, the first place I would go after criminal justice is family justice, because it's sometimes really important to establish whether an individual, for example, has been habitually using drugs or alcohol or abusing drugs or alcohol in family justice proceedings. And at the minute, that's unregulated. The provision of that that testing is unregulated. And that seems out of kilter to me. In terms of everything that you see going on in the UK and internationally, what do you predict are going to be the key areas in relation to digital forensics for society and for organisations like Privacy International to be following and watching and understanding? Well, I guess as technology develops at such a pace as it is at the minute, and our adoption of technology in everyday life just gets greater and greater, it will be about just the volume and complexity of data that exists about each of us. I mean, I've recently changed to an electric car, and I know that if I was um, in an accident the police would be able to download a phenomenal amount of information about me and about my driving behavior and about everything to do with who was doing what in my vehicle. And that's a whole different level than in my old 13-year-old car I had until last month when they'd have struggled to get anything to connect to it. So the more we use technology, the more that other organizations can make use of our use of technology. So That has advantages and disadvantages. I mean, it has advantages because we all want to see um, a reduction in crime and we all want to see a reduction in drug dealing and all the rest of it. And the more that technology can be effectively used, the better in reducing crime. But we just have to be careful that we don't end up with unintended consequences. And the complexity of all the the traces that we're going to be leaving and the fact that I may never have been in contact with someone, but three steps away down a digital chain, they may have done something that could potentially, you know, link through a whole web of other information to a whole load of other people. And it's just making sure that we keep up with making sure that anything that we do for law enforcement is both reliable and also proportionate. 
I mean, that seems like a natural point to finish, but I did have one more question. Sure. A while ago, a colleague and I wrote a serious slash tongue-in-cheek piece about With My Fridge as My Witness. And one of the things that we've raised again and again is it's not just mobile phones that will be the extracted device. And there's been very little resonance that we've had either with stakeholders being various regulators or with broadly with sort of civil society and organizations and saying it's not just the mobile phone we need to be worried about. It's everything else that's collecting data too, whether it's your fridge, whether it's your Amazon Alexa, which is more well known because of various criminal cases that have happened in the States. But I was just wondering if you could reflect a bit on that in the concerns you have about broader device extraction, the different software that these devices have and how complex, because you already touched upon complexity and volume, but how complicated that makes it. Not only do you have different phones and different operating systems in mobile extraction, if you add in 10 devices per person on average that you could have in each case, or more than that's probably a massive underestimation, what that looks like. I think, to be honest, the data extraction is the least of our issues. You know, although there are differences between different devices and so on, it's ultimately a technology problem. I think more important is how we interpret what we're getting from all these devices and making sure that there isn't a potential to spin them into a really convincing narrative that could have 10 other explanations. And we really need to make sure, I think, that particularly in criminal proceedings, that there is sufficient scrutiny and that we get the disclosure of evidence in criminal proceedings right, because there's no point in handing over terabytes and terabytes of data, huge data files, and say, go find what you can in that. We've got to be targeted, you know, taking a proper strategic approach to each case, thinking, what do we need to look at? What are our reasonable lines of inquiry? Can we engage early with all other parties in the case and make sure that we are doing what is reasonable and what is proportionate and that therefore we're finding the relevant data and disclosing the relevant data so that it can be scrutinized and that we're interpreting how all those strands of data fit together in an appropriate and unbiased manner. I think that would be my real concern. I think the boat has sailed on us controlling our data in many ways. I think, you know, and, and I look at my teenage children and their friends, and they just don't care about other people having their data. If they can get some value from trading their data, then that's what they'll do. You know, loyalty cards and everything else, every, any sharing of data. So in many ways, that boat has sailed. So we've got to be extra careful then about how that data is used, how it's analysed, making sure that we don't overinterpret it and making sure that we just are really focused on what needs to be done in a particular situation. That was really interesting. I loved it. Thank you. Okay, good. Nice to speak to you all. Nice to speak to you. Okay, bye. 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 Thank you for listening. Millie, thank you for joining us yet again on the podcast. And maybe we'll have you back as a guest guest uh, to hear about your experiences as you move on in life. 
Remember, you can tell us what you think about the podcast by visiting us at pvcy.org slash tpsurvey. You can sign up to be the first to learn more about our work at pvcy.org slash pod signup. And we'll include some links to the relevant articles and information in the description wherever you're listening or on our website at pvcy.org slash techpill. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. Music courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International. Awesome. It's a wrap. <laughs>